Well, let's go ahead and open with some prayer, and then I'm going to read our, our text this morning. Father, as we prepare our hearts to look at your word, help us to hear you. Holy Spirit, illumine our minds, our spirits, our hearts. Speak to us for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes to us from the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. But I'm going to actually start a little bit before that, up in verse 17, just to give a little background. So this is the word of the Lord. And when I saw him, this is John, that's John speaking, and he's, John is saying, when he saw Jesus... When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And this is our text. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus speaking, and he's telling John what to write. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have that you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. When I went down to Arizona to care for my folks so a little over a year ago, I thought I was prepared to handle what I encountered. I, after all, my primary career was as a nursing home administrator, and I dealt with lots of folks who are aging, aging folks and situations and issues, and lots of families dealing with aging folks and situations and issues. In addition, I'd had numerous acquaintances and experiences that had dealt with aging folks and situations and issues. Candidly, this all should have given me a clue that I was actually very unprepared. My lack of actual personal 
experience and my lack of the stamina necessary to handle what I encountered became more pronounced. And the more I dealt with doctors and med lists and appointments and driving issues and memory issues and urine and fraudsters and diet and nurses and social workers and insurance, I mean, the list goes on. At one point in the beginning, as the delusion of my competence was really setting in as I was kind of embracing my new reality, I even began to feel like I was maybe the first one in the history of the world to deal with such a difficult situation. Ever been there? One, our tendency is to think that whenever we're going through or whatever we're going through is, is unique to us, then we think that we're the only ones to ever encounter what we're encountering, even though reality and the scriptures state otherwise. The book of Ecclesiastes very clearly says there is nothing new under the sun. But somehow, though, we often think and feel that our financial struggles or our emotional issues, our spiritual issues, our relational issues are entirely unique to us. Or no one else on the planet is going through them, has gone through them, will go through them. At least that's kind of how I felt, at least for a little while. That was until I started talking to people. And whether it was the person living next to me or the person who was cutting my hair or someone at church or the oil change guy, I soon learned in humbling ways sometimes, that my feelings were far from reality. Many, many people, particularly in that retirement haven of Arizona, have and had gone through and were going through what I was going through. And many of them were going through way more difficult situations than mine. Had I been wiser, I would have learned from their example, if not merely to understand that I was not alone in this process. You see, there's great value in listening to the stories of those who've traveled on roads before us. And this is one of the beauties of the scriptures. God has given us his scriptures that are filled with such life examples. From learning about sin and repentance through the story of David and Bathsheba, or to learning about forgiveness and restoration from the story about Peter and a rooster or to learning about grieving and suffering from Job, or to learn about faithfulness in the face of over, overwhelming adversity in the book of Judges, or to learn about the advantages of faithfulness versus wickedness in the book of Kings. We can learn from the stories of those people who have gone before us. And we're not limited to merely looking at individuals like David or Naaman or Ehud or Paul, we, we also have examples we can learn from by looking at, at nations and even communities in the scriptures. Of course, we have all of the lessons of Israel, and there are many. We also have lessons to learn from Egypt and Babylon and, and for example, the Philistines who, who got more than they bargained for one time when they thought their God was more powerful than Yahweh. I don't know if you recall the story, but the Philistines had taken the ark and set it in front of their idol god who kept falling over until it was shattered and then the Philistines broke out with tumors and a rodent infestation. I mean, it's a great story. And, and, and at a minimum... That story teaches about the Philistines teaches us to never underestimate God and never subordinate him to anything. So we can learn from stories. 
One example of a community in the New Testament that we can learn from that I'm only recently really learning from is, at least in, in the light that we're going to be looking at it here, um, is the church and the believers in Ephesus. The truth is that we actually have a lot of stuff recorded about the church in Ephesus in the New Testament. And while uh, we also have stuff about the church in Jerusalem or Antioch or Corinth, it can easily be argued that we have more information or data or chronological references within the New Testament about the church in Ephesus than any other New Testament church. Candidly, this kind of surprised me. I mean, I've been a believer in Jesus for 50 years now. I went to seminary, and this just kind of dawned on me. And the more I looked into it, it was phenomenal. In the, uh, I believe that we, as a church here at QBC, and, and as individuals, that we can learn from that local fellowship in Ephesus by listening to and observing and seeing what happened to them, what was said to them, what was said about them. I would have been substantially better off if, list, if I'd listened to others who had gone through that journey of caring for elderly folks. In the same way, I truly believe that we as a church and as individuals will be much better off if we learn from our brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Hopefully, by so doing, we'll be able to avoid some of their pitfalls. And I definitely want to avoid the terrifying indictment that the Lord gives them in that letter that I just read to you from the book of the Revelation. That I just read it a few moments ago, and I'm going to read it again. My intention over the coming weeks is to take a journey with these believers in Ephesus. This morning we're going to start off with a quick overview of some of the info that we have about these fellow believers and then take a brief look at that letter, uh, a letter that we will again look at in much more detail at the end of this journey. But today we're just going to do this quick overview of the history and then take a brief look at the letter. But before we begin that um, quick overview, as uh, recorded in the New Testament, let's, uh, let's read the letter again that includes that concerning indictment. Um, and this is a letter that we as a church do not want to receive. And, and remember that this letter is from the glorified, eternal, all-powerful Jesus and was written to a church, a real church, like us. And, and here's a little interesting thing. A church that's only about as old as us here at QBC. According to the famous historian Tom Borges, who now resides in the desert regions of Arizona, that foreign land, uh, our church was started in April 1984. That would make us 39 years old. The indictment of the Ephesian church was given by Jesus to the Ephesian church when they were about as old as us. There's a question about whether it was 
17 years or 44 years, and it has to do with the dating of the Revelation, which we can talk about later on. But the purpose, for the purposes, that, that difference of when the Revelation was written really doesn't matter because the point is that it's a church about as old as us. And this is one of the most important churches in the New Testament times, and it was about as old as us. And it was not a good letter, particularly when we consider, which we will over the coming weeks, all that's gone before this. So now the indictment. I'm going to read it again. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the church, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he whose right hand, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and you've found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And the concern is really verses 4 and 5. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Later in this message, I will touch on a little more detail what is meant by remove your lampstand. Uh, For now, let me just say, whatever it means, it is really bad And we really do not want that to happen to us. Now some background. The uh, church in Ephesus was founded around 52 or 53. This is a little history lesson here. Um, Around 52 or 53, about 20 years after Christ's resurrection. While there is some belief that the apostle John had visited Ephesus before Paul, the church really did not start until Paul's visit in 52 or 53. Acts 18, um, and Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 21, gives us this first encounter with the church. And this comes um, after Paul had had a very dynamic time in Corinth, where he had been there for about a year and a half. The church had got going, and this is where our text picks up in Acts chapter 18. So Paul still remained a a good while there in Corinth. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut at Syncria, for he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, Apollos and, I mean, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a little longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, 
I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So Paul shows up in Ephesus with these two people he had met in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers that Paul had spent a fair amount of time with in Corinth. They were Jews who had been ordered out of Rome by the emperor um, when all of the Jews were kicked out of Rome, and they landed there in Corinth. Paul connected with them because of their similar trade, and he led them to the Lord Jesus, discipling them and even preparing them for Christian ministry. Then these two traveled with Paul to Ephesus, and the church is born. And after Paul arrived in Ephesus, he performed a Jewish ritual, which is really interesting. We'll look at that next week. He preached the gospel to the Jews, stayed for a short while. Then Paul left these new disciples, Aquila and Priscilla, left these with the new believers there in Ephesus, promising to return, after which Paul spent time in the surrounding areas. That's the birth of the church in Ephesus. We next encounter the Ephesian church when another preacher shows up in Ephesus named Apollos. There was a problem with Apollos, though, because Apollos only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. He hadn't heard of Christ, and he only knew of John's baptism. And I really like this Apollos guy, and again, we're going to look at him more closely next week. But leave it to say that the discipleship that Paul had rendered to Aquila and Priscilla bore fruit in their work with this man who became a mighty evangelist and, and, a, and a real powerful teacher and who interestingly is sent by the church in Ephesus back to the new church in Corinth. But this time he has the full gospel. And then we have a very interesting story in Acts 19 verses 1 to 10 in which Paul, after arriving in Ephesus for a second time, encounter some folks similar to Apollos who may have been evangelized by Apollos. We really don't know for sure. But they were also dealing with this partial or this incomplete gospel, knowing only John the Baptist and John's baptism and nothing about the rest of the gospel. And they were particularly in the dark about the Holy Spirit, who Paul later reminds the Ephesians in his letter to them the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until God finishes His work. They were missing that part. After this, we have a story in Acts 19 involving some itinerant Jewish exorcists who made the mistake of trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus without knowing Jesus or being true Christians or true followers of Jesus. And it didn't turn out very well for them, but it did have an imp impact on others in that area as God used their folly and their judgment for his glory. The next thing that we have recorded on the church of Ephesus, I mean, this is a lot of stuff. I mean, you know all these stories, but when you put them together, there's a lot going on here in, in Ephesus. So the next thing we have recorded on the church of Ephesus is about a riot that was caused by the makers of some idols who were upset that the gospel of Jesus was impacting their pocketbooks. They weren't able to sell as many idols. It, it too is a, a great story, and in many ways it shows the boldness and the maturity of this fledgling church that was only a few years old at this point. Then at the beginning of chapter 20, after a period of about three years, a time during which we can safely say that pot, 
Paul has taught them the basics and way more. Uh, we have Paul departing Ephesus and going on his missionary journey that eventually has him headed back to Jerusalem. The next encounter with the Ephesian church occurred probably around 57, 58 AD, about five years after the church was started in Ephesus. Uh, on Paul's journey, on his way to Jerusalem, where he will be arrested, leading to his imprisonment, leading to his trial in Rome, Paul stops over at a place called Miletus, where he had another encounter with the church. Uh, this time, the elders of the church of Ephesus came down to spend some time with him because Paul was not able to go up to be with them. But in that meeting, which is a really emotional story when you read it, uh, Paul makes it very clear that, that the church, these elders, they have the basics. They have all of them. That they're, He makes it very clear they're going to have some challenges. And, and, he, and he, he makes it very clear that they, they need to deal with them when they come up and he makes it very clear that he loves them, and these guys really love Paul. The whole thing ends with this tearful time there on the beach as they're all saying goodbye and all crying and weeping. From there, Paul goes to Jerusalem where he's arrested and imprisoned, and he appeals to Caesar. We know that story, and he ends up being taken as a prisoner eventually up to Rome where he's under house arrest, and yet he spends his time evangelizing and writing some letters among which four of them are in our canon, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and the book, the letter to the Ephesians, which brings us to the book of Ephesians, which Paul wrote while in prison in Rome and most likely with Timothy nearby and very aware of the letter. This would have been around 61, 62. Remember, they're founded in 52, 53, so it's about nine years after their founding. When we look at this letter, we get to know the church. Paul loved this church, loved these folks. Even though the church was maybe only eight or nine years old, it was vibrant and knew a ton of stuff. And this letter was written by someone, Paul, who, who knew them. He knew these believers in Ephesus, a church that had, had been growing and was maturing since being established. And in this letter, Paul again reminds them of the basics and calls them forward. After this, the information on the church uh, in Ephesus is more indirect. First, there are the letters Paul wrote to the pastor of the Ephesian church, Timothy, around 64 or 65, about 11 or 12 years after their founding. Paul wrote these letters after his release from Roman imprisonment, after the last chapter in the book of Acts, well, well, Paul most likely spent that time ministering in other areas, probably Macedonia, um, though other scholars think that Paul may have, during this time, actually made it all the way to Spain. Um, what is clear is that during this time, Paul sent Timothy to the Ephesians in the midst of it all. Paul's letters to Timothy were sent by Paul, Timothy's mentor, to address issues he knew Timothy as the pastor of the Ephesian church, a church Paul knew very well, was encountering. The next connection with the Ephesian church would be the three letters uh, that the Apostle John wrote, who, according to tradition and some not completely conclusive references 
in the New Testament, served as the pastor of the Ephesian church after Timothy. What is safe to say is that though 1st, 2nd, 3rd John were not written specifically to the Ephesian church, there is a fairly high degree of certainty that the intended audience included the church in Ephesus and might have even been written specifically to members of the church of Ephesus. But beyond this, it can safely be assumed that what was said in the letters would not have been entirely foreign to them in the Ephesian church, since they would have heard it from their pastor who had been there. They probably heard this material firsthand, and if not, they would have seen the letters. And the three letters undoubtedly addressed the issues the Ephesian church was dealing with. So by looking at those, we learn about the Ephesian church. The final bit of information we have in the scriptures on the Ephesian church is is the letter from Jesus in the Revelation, which, which we read earlier. So that was a fast history lesson. I, I'm, there's going to be a test, so make sure you got all those dates right. But, but you got an idea that there's a lot of stuff going on in this Ephesian church. It's not, I, too, for too many years, when I thought of the Ephesian church, I thought of the, the letter to the Ephesians, and that was it. There's a lot of stuff, and we're going to learn from these brothers and sisters. So in between the time the church started in 52-53 and the letter recorded in the Revelation, that's about the same time that QBC's been around, that church had the benefit of the teaching and discipleship and leadership of Priscilla and Aquila, of Apollos, of Paul, of Timothy, and of the Apostle John. And that's just who we know of for sure. Paul was there for at least three years, um, longer than he was anywhere else. Timothy, possibly longer. And John, maybe even longer. They had also seen miracles and wonderful works of God and had a very important letter written to them and had access to the other epistles that were circulating. Plus they had the instructions that Paul wrote to Timothy And they had probably privy to all of John's thoughts on a first-hand basis. And they were reflected in those three epistles. This was a church. I mean, basically, this church had a ton of stuff. Stuff that any other church, and this is not to encourage envy, but any other church would have been envious of. But even that, even all of that, did not help them in the end. When it came down to it, they blew it. And and brothers and sisters, I do not want that to happen to us. What this brings us to the end of the story, at least as recorded about the church of Ephesus in the scriptures. And, And like I said, it's not good. In a moment, I'm going to read the passage from Revelation again. As I do, this time, think of it as a real church, like us, as old as us. They had training and they had discipleship far beyond anything that we've experienced. This is a real letter sent by the real, glorified, resurrected, all-powerful, all-knowing, generous, forgiving, long-suffering Jesus. The same Jesus that we worship and serve. And it's not hypothetical. 
And the Ephesian church, as well as the churches to whom the other letters were written, would have understood that. And while we can hear all of these letters as if they're written to us, his church, the specifics of this letter would not have been missed by the people in Ephesus. And while the scripture is silent on what happens to the Ephesian church after this, in truth, that really doesn't matter, at least to us. What happened to them is exactly what Jesus said would happen to them, depending on their response. What matters for us is how we respond. When it comes down to it, what they did is not as important as what, at least for us, as what we do. Now hear the letter one more time. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. As I said earlier, we, we will get into this letter more at the end of the series. But for now, let me just summarize a few things. The church was not all bad. In fact, Jesus commended them for their works, their toil, and their patient endurance in waiting and in suffering. He also commended them for standing on the truth and for resisting evil and even for good discernment. On top of that, they were commended for enduring patiently, something I'm not very good at, and, and for bearing up most likely to intense persecution and hardship, also something I'm probably I'm not good at and hope, hope I will do better. And they, they were doing it for Jesus' name, not their own name. And they were not growing weary. This is not all bad. Candidly, if that were my report card or this church's report card, I'd be thrilled. Wouldn't you? I mean, that's a good report card. But that's not the issue. Basically, getting it all right and doing it all right is not the issue. What it says in verses 4 and 5 is what matters. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. When the Lord of the universe says he has something against you, it should concern you. Actually, at this point, all the other stuff really fades away. 
In fact, the seriousness of this indictment is such that they are merely given a choice. Their choice is to remember and repent and do what they did when they first believed, or else the Lord Almighty, the King of Kings, will come and remove their lampstand, which we'll talk about later. But as I said previously, that is not something you want to have happen to you. It is judgment. It is really bad. The point, Jesus tells them to remember their first love, to repent from their neglect of their first love, from burying it or whatever their current behavior was, such as their first love, which had been driving them when they first believed, was now no longer present. And he tells them to start acting like they were when they first believed. Or else, serious consequences and judgment are right around the corner. So, what is this first love that they've forgotten? That's a pretty important question. For this, I want to look at the letter Paul wrote to them. And I'm going to paraphrase and summarize uh, from that letter, the letter to the Ephesians. Hopefully it will help us understand what this first love was. um, In Ephesians 1 and 2, um, in Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul repeatedly and powerfully reminds the church of the grace shown to them. He reminds them of God's great love for them and how Christ died for our sins out of love that we absolutely did not deserve it and while we were actually dead dead and lost and separated from him he died for us he reminds them that due to God's love for them God has made them alive in Christ and brought them into this precious union with God in Christ and with each other which is and because of God's love. That's an oversimplification, but that's the first two chapters. But you get the gist. And then a little later in chapter 3, Paul says this. I'm going to read Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length, and the depth, and the height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. A little later, he says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also loved us, and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. There's more, but I want to turn to the words of their pastor now, the Apostle John, which um, the Ephesians would have heard a few times. This is from John, 1 John 4, 7 to 11. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this we lo- the love of God was manifest towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this we love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you get the idea? And of course, there's this summation that comes in 1 John 4, 19, which says, we love him because he first loved us. This love thing is a big deal. And the Ephesian church seems to have forgotten this. And they are in trouble for not loving him and for not loving each other. They've forgotten the amazing, astounding, eternal love of God for them that was demonstrated in Christ Jesus. And they are not loving each other as they did at first. When they first came to understand the love of God, which resulted in them loving each other, which was the work they did at the beginning. They've forgotten the one who loves them. The thing Christ has against them is they've forgotten their first love. They've forgotten him. Well, okay, we've covered a ton of stuff this morning. And I, candidly, I, I, I'm looking forward to the upcoming weeks as we explore this deeper and broader and learn from our brothers and sisters in Ephesus. But for now, I want to hone in on, one more time on this first love thing. The consequence of having lost it or of letting it fade away for whatever reason, regardless of how good we are in other areas and how good our doctrine is and how much we are willing to go to bat for the truth and how much suffering or persecution we are even willing to endure for the name of Christ, the consequence of having lost that first love is very serious. We cannot lose our first love. We must remember Jesus and God's love for us demonstrated in Jesus. So I ask you, have you lost your first love? Has it faded? Is this love for Jesus coming out in your love for others? If so, We need to be really concerned about the consequences that Jesus told the Ephesian church would happen for letting that happen. It is not good. So if you're concerned that your first love might have faded or is gone, I have the solution. Okay, ready? Close your eyes. Now try to love. Come on, try harder. Try, try. You know, squint, see if it works. You know, that's not going to work. That's just not going to work. My brothers and sisters, the solution is not to try harder to love. To love Jesus or to love anybody. But it is found in thinking about and remembering, as the letter to the church reminds them, to think about the one 
who loved them, who loves us and what he did for us. Think on the love demonstrated towards you in that while you were a sinner and fully deserving of the eternal righteous judgment and wrath of a just and all-powerful God, that God loved you so much that he died in your place enduring the judgment we deserve. That's what we need to think about. And it really does matter what you think about. I want to do another exercise. Concentrate now. Think about a bowl of yellowish brown green slime with a fork in it. How do you feel? Anybody hungry? Now think about a bowl of ice cream with the hot brownie underneath it, and you can still smell it from baking in the oven, and maybe a little hot fudge and whipped cream, maybe even a cherry on top with a fork in it. Feel a little better than the green slime? I mean, it's a silly example. But thinking about things matters. Remembering things matters. Now another exercise. Remember. Think about Jesus on that cross as he was suffering and dying for you so that you would not bear the full righteous judgment and wrath of God who is going to hold you accountable for all the sins you've ever done. And he's hanging there and doing it because he loves you. Remember him and what he did and what it was like when you first realized this. Think about it. Remember. You got it? Hold that thought. Now try to hate your neighbor who irritates you. Try to be upset with your Christian brother about something petty, even even something big. Remember, Jesus also died for them. Do you get it? If we want to love one another more, to love Jesus more, to live out that love, don't try. It won't work. Trying harder to love won't work. But look at Jesus. Look at him. Remember what he has done. That is when transformation happens. That is how we will get our first love back. That is what the Ephesian church was not doing that we as a church cannot go that direction. Brothers and sisters, as we walk and grow together, let us remember him, Jesus, and let us not lose our first love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, It is impossible for us to fully comprehend 
the full measure of your love for us demonstrated in Christ Jesus. But we know that it is because of what you did in him that we have life, we have hope, we have the promise of eternity. Lord, give us faith, give us endurance in memory, give us focus on Jesus for your glory as we love each other. Amen.